Which do you think we see in the New Testament after Jesus commissions his apostles to go out and make disciples and they go out? Do we see kingdom addition or do we see kingdom multiplication? Always. Always. When you plant a seed, one apple seed, are you planning on getting one apple? Guess what? You're the seed. Not planning on getting one piece of fruit from you during your entire life. It's not Jesus' plan. This church, one church seed, one location, one planting of the word of God, and it should look like an orchard. But sometimes within church, we, we're so like thinking small, we're thinking our way, human way, instead of God's big picture, universal plan kind of way that we would think, you know, if, if I can even just reach one person this year with the gospel, that they might come to Christ and commit their lives to him, that would be an amazing miracle. And you know what? It would be. The Bible says that angels rejoice over one sinner who comes to repentance more than, you know, a thousand or a hundred, does it say, of righteous. But should our goal be one? No. Does it seem like when the God's kingdom, when the church, when the gospel is just like going out in power, that it happens on a one-to-one ratio? No. So our measurements, our standards, our expectations, our prayers should be, God, multiply me. Don't just make me an addition to your kingdom. For parents with multiple children, I know there's a bunch of us here, would you be satisfied if one of your kids came to Christ? Why not? Kingdom addition. At least one of your kids made it. That's not how a parent thinks, is it? <laughs> At least one of my kids will live forever. The others will be spending an eternity apart from the Lord. But, you know, one got in. It's like making it to the majors in a sport. One hit it big. That's not how we think about our eternity. <clears throat> it's not how we think about our soul. It's definitely not how we think about our kids. And it's not how we should be thinking about our church and our faith. Let's pray the prayers that God prays. For God so loved the world that he sent how many sons? Multiplication. Let's pray for kingdom multiplication instead of kingdom addition. Now, if I pray big, and if I spend all of my time and all of my effort reaching out to as many people as I can, tell them Jesus loves you, God's good. There are things like forgiveness and there are things like grace and there's things like finding out who you are made to be and living in that identity and there's things like freedom. It's good. And over the course of that year, only one person submits their heart to Christ. Fully satisfied. <laughs> Fully satisfied. But my expectation was that I have many opportunities to live for Christ and everyone who I come into contact with needs Christ. And so pray big and think big. Who will it be today? Who will it be tomorrow? Which five people will it be today? Which 20 people this week? Right? It's just a different way of thinking. I'm trying to stretch our brains a little bit out of our comfortable New England comfort zones. <coughs> I could never share with someone about my faith. So you're never going to bear spiritual children? The gospel just grows. So that should be a natural part of being alive. It should happen. So we should want that. So we should seek it. We should pray for it. We should look to be active in a multiplication kind of sense. Do you remember the parable of the sower and the soil? Four different kinds of soil, right? But one seed. The seed is God loves you. Jesus died for your sins. 
that seed, when it hits different soil, responds in different ways. And we know the one rejects, one is kind of short-lived, like, yay, Christianity, and then five minutes later, squirrel, and that person runs off. Another person's like, yeah, I love Jesus, but you know what? Life is busy. <clears throat> Got bills to pay. Doesn't that actually define many of us as Christians? And all of us at one point or another probably find ourselves in that niche. That's not the goal niche. <laughs> That's not the goal soil. That's like stopping one short of the rich soil. What happens with the rich soil? It receives the word and it bears fruit, bears a harvest 30, 60, 90 times. So I should be multiplying by 30, 60, or 90, perhaps? Is that daily? Is that annually? Multiply, not just add. I want us to read a story together from Scripture that paints this picture better than I ever could in words. It's just one chapter in the book of Acts, and it's what it looks like after Jesus rises from the dead. This is the Sunday after Easter. This is what it should start to look like for us if we serve a resurrected king. So would you just read it with me? It's in Acts chapter 10. It's the story of Peter and Cornelius. We're going to read through it. There's eight beautiful, powerful little moments that we can grasp. Little teachings, little points, themes. And after we've read it, after we've kind of dug out of it these little nuggets, these gems, these spiritual truths, I want us to think about what does it mean for us. This is the book of Acts. This is what happened. These are Acts of the Apostles. You know, that's why we call it the book of Acts, right? It was written by Luke. It's kind of like Luke book two. We have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. We really should have Luke, First and Second Luke. But the first one is just called the Gospel according to Luke, which means it's the good news of Jesus, how Luke recorded it. And the second one is entitled The Acts of the Apostles. What are all the activities of these people that Jesus gave his Holy Spirit to and said, go and make disciples? So what happened after it? So it's written by the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And um, there's always a debate within different forms of Christianity, different denominations, different approaches, different theologies, as to whether Acts is meant to be normative Meaning, should every church look like, look like the Acts church? They were in this Roman society and this empire with specific cultural norms, and it was the birth of the kingdom. Is it supposed to be different for them? The miracles that we saw, did they just happen then? Like, that's what happened in those days. That's not what happens now. Yeah, back then. I think we can look at principles, and we can look at practices. We don't necessarily have to dress the exact way that these Christians did. But if we don't see the same things happening in our culture, then we have to say, well, has God changed? Has God stopped working? Has God stopped doing miracles? Has God stopped wanting us to spread the gospel? Has God stopped using people? We have to say no to all those questions. So I think when you read Acts, you should see a foreshadowing. You should see an image of what our church is supposed to look like today. Maybe some of the details will look different, but the same sorts of conversations, the same sorts of activities. So we read Acts with a view of what it means to us. Right? It's called hermeneutics. What am I supposed to do with this thing when I'm reading it? 
How do I apply it? We read Acts and say, this is what God did in the church. I'm in the church. How is God going to do this for me and for us? So within this context, we're going to read a story about Peter, the one who was one of Jesus' closest, the one who denied him three times so shortly before, the one who walked on water, the one who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter. The one who Jesus said, you will be the cornerstone of the church. So this story is about a dream and a vision that Peter had and a Roman officer, military officer. They have simultaneous dreams that bring them together. So let's read it. It's Acts chapter 10, and then we'll dig into it. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So he's a Roman military soldier. A centurion means one over a hundred, but there were different levels of hundreds. So he might have been just over a single hundred, or the cohort was, you know, eight hundreds up to a thousand people, eight hundred to a thousand. It could be um, various levels, but he's a soldier who has people under his command within this Italian regiment, and he's living in Caesarea. Now, he's a devout man, okay? This means he's very religious. He's a spiritual guy, religious guy. He feared God. The term for this is a God-fearer. This would have been someone who's Greek or Roman, but who was like drawn to the teachings of the God of the Jews, and then to Christ, a Gentile person, who's religious, who fears God, the God. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people. It does good deeds. And he prayed continually to God. He's a man who prays. Now about the ninth hour of the day, a little sidebar here, this was the time of afternoon prayer. So he's praying during the Jewish time of afternoon prayer. He's praying when you're supposed to pray, doing what you're supposed to do. And in that time of prayer, daily prayer, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. This is the right response to interaction with an angel. We see it throughout scripture. It's not arrogance, it's humility, power of God. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? The angel said to him, your prayers And your alms, your good deeds and your prayers, have ascended as a memorial before God. Now that's a beautiful statement. Would that 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 would be true and that that would be said for each of us. Now, Cornelius, send men. You got a lot of people you command. Send some men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with another Simon, who's a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. Now when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier devout, religious guy, from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, told him about his visions, got the guy, bup, 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 he sent them to Joppa. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. This is around noontime. Another devout man praying at the prescribed hour of prayer. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he's waiting for lunch. Someone's cooking lunch. Maybe the tanner, maybe the tanner's wife. He fell into a trance and he saw the heavens open and something, it was like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners down to the earth. And in it, 
On this sheet were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. He's speaking as a devout Jew. We don't eat these sorts of animals. It's against the old covenant. The voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Sheet down, rise and eat. I wouldn't. What God has said, don't call unclean. He's called clean three times. And then the thing was taken up at once back to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, he's literally just sitting back like, what in the world was that all about? Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius at that moment, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having already made inquiry for Simon's house, they stood at the gate and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Now, while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, the three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Right? So Cornelius is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, this Cornelius was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house so that he can hear what you have to say. So Peter doesn't know what he has to say, <laughs> but some other guy has sent some other guys to get him to go say something to some guy he's never met, and this is a Roman officer who's commanding him to come and report, is this good? Is this bad? Am I okay? Am I in trouble? Like, wh what am I supposed to say? But he already had the angel speak to him, give him instructions before he walked down to the door. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them. Some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. I think it's about 30 miles away from what I was able to look up. I believe this walk is, you know, a day's walk. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was expecting them. Look what he did. So he had called together his relatives and his close friends now, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet, and he worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up. I'm a guy, too. You know, like, I put on my, leg, my pants one leg at a time, too. I'm just a guy, just like you. And as he talked with him, he went in, and he found many persons gathered. So Peter walks in, and there's like a party. All right, we're here. Ready to tell us what you've got to tell us? Peter's like, I didn't prepare a sermon, um, but Okay. So he walked in and he found many persons gathered. And he said to them, all of you Gentiles, you outsiders, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me I shouldn't call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, what am I doing here? Why'd you send for me? So Cornelius says, four days ago, right about this moment, I was praying in my house at the prayer time, at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and he said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. 
And in that moment, Peter knew what to say. He just shared how amazed he was at what God was doing and what kind of God he serves. He gave him the gospel, folks. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I get it now. I understand that God shows no partiality. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, because Jesus is Lord of all, whether you're Jewish or not, he's Lord of the earth. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after Jesus' baptism, the one that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter says, we were witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to go and preach to all the people. You know, go make disciples of all nations. And to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets, Old Testament, bear witness that everyone believes in, who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The Holy Spirit came on them. They felt it. God's in this place. He's in my heart. He's in my mind. I feel the Holy Spirit in this place. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, so the Jewish Christians, they were amazed because these aren't Jews. How could they get the Holy Spirit? They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues, praising God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? We're the same. How can we not baptize them? Look, they have the Holy Spirit. They believe. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. So the party continues. And the questions get asked. And Peter talks and he shares things that he saw. He's an eyewitness. And he tells them what happened, how the tomb was empty, the conversations he had. And he's doing this to a group of people that were religious outcasts. This is the way our faith is supposed to look. This is. Let me give you eight reasons why. First is the word lordship. Lordship. If Jesus is king, if he triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, if he rose from the dead, then he's in charge. He's king. He's Lord. That means we have to do whatever he says whenever he says it. And everything that we learn in the Bible that he says we have to do it, he's the Lord. He's king. We're not. So when we believe in Christ, we put ourselves in a position of servanthood to him, brotherhood to him as our older brother, but we obey. He knows best. He walks first. He leads us. We're his disciples. So when we study the word, we learn what Jesus says, we live it out. When we hear a word from the Holy Spirit, when an angel comes to us, when others who have the Holy Spirit, when Christians speak to us, we listen because we're trying to find out what Jesus wants us to do. What's the point of being alive? What's the point of this day? What's the point of this week? What's the point of my family? Why was I born in this country at this time? Why was I put in this job? Jesus, tell me, show me. I'm your servant. 
and your Lord, so I'll do whatever you say. Both Cornelius, who was an unsaved seeker, and Peter, who was one of the closest people to ever walk with Jesus, both got the same vision, and they both said, yep, right now, I'll do that. Cornelius got up, sent people out, and just happened. Peter went down, went with the people, and just did it because they understood lordship. Peter even preaches it in his little mini-sermon. Jesus is Lord of all. I see it now. It's not just about Jewish people. Lordship. If we don't have a good sense of lordship, then we're going to pick and choose what we want to obey in this book. Because if Jesus isn't king, then these are like a book of, like a quote for the day. Right? Mottos to live by. It's like a collection of old-fashioned memes. Just look at one a day, get a nice little thought, maybe it'll be helpful. Or, this is the person who owns your soul, you signed off the rights to your soul, and so he's telling you what his heart is, what your purpose, and you just, you're, you're dying to know what it is, and so you read and you learn and you go. And when other Christians come alongside, you're like, what about this? Let's learn about this. Let's go here or be careful for this or watch out for this. You're like, oh, I wonder what God's trying to tell me. Instead of, don't tell me what to do. We make ourselves servants. We make Christ Lord. God can speak through creation. Holy Spirit can speak. Jesus has spoken, continues to speak. We can read the Bible and hear what God said. Other Christians, it's kind of like Father, Son, Spirit. You can hear from him in any of those ways. And the church. <laughs> You're going to hear from the church in creation. Like these little power-packed little places where you can go and you can actually experience what God wants to say to us. We need to be looking for those. We need to be open to those because we need Jesus to lead us. Otherwise, you're trying to, and I'm trying to make up my life as we go. No. Speak, Father. Your servant is listening. So that's the first thing we see here is lordship. The second one is prayer. None of this happens without prayer. Peter doesn't get a vision without prayer. Cornelius doesn't get help without prayer. Prayer, 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 prayer. You want people to receive a word from you from the Lord? Pray for them. Pray at all. You want to receive a word from the Lord? From, pray. Ask God to send you a Peter. Be a Peter. Pray. If there's no interaction, no communication with God, none of this happens. Lordship and prayer. Next one is inclusion. This is the first instance in the New Testament that we have of all the Gentiles being welcomed into the Christian, which was Jewish, Christian, Messiah, Christ, family. But it opened the gates wide up. Do you know the next chapter, chapter 11, I encourage you to read it this week. Peter goes back to the Jerusalem council and he has to give an account of what happened. And they're like, you did what? To who? You let them in? Those guys worship pagan idols. They eat all sorts of junk. We don't eat that stuff. We don't get our hands dirty in that way. We don't have those, they don't follow our rituals. They're not ceremonial clean. And Peter said, what was I supposed to do? I had a vision from God. And at that moment, three guys showed up. And I went there and this guy said he had prayed and knew my name and what house I was staying in. I told him about Jesus and immediately they just felt the Holy Spirit and like, get us some water. We got to get saved right now. He's like, you wanted me to walk away from that? You think that wasn't God? So he convinces them. They're like, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. Okay, okay. And that was the beginning of the inclusion. For most of us, a few of us here do have Jewish roots. But most of us don't. 
This chapter is the beginning of our story in Christ's story. We're only here in this place because it's not just a faith for the Jewish people. It's a faith for the entire world through the Jewish people. They are the caretakers, the ambassadors, the lamp bringers, the light givers, the the gateway through which the Messiah came. But it wasn't just for them because God loves all people. So this is inclusion, huge. Think about it in terms of the people around you who are in or who are out. Another word we need to think of here. So we've got, um, we've got lordship, we've got prayer, we've got inclusion, relationships. Who was waiting for Peter when he showed up? Like everybody Cornelius knew. Guess who you're going to lead to Christ? The people you know. Now there may be some people that you just bump into along the way and praise God for that. But why not have all the people you know in your living room and talk about Jesus together? Why not? What if I get a call? What if I'm Peter one of these days? It's from one of you. Like, so, Dave, come on over. Thursday night, 8 p.m. Super excited to hear what God has to say from you. Click. Should I prepare a Bible study or a sermon? Should I dress up? Should I dress down? And I show up and there's 50 people in your living room. And they're like, what did God say? That's what happened here. I would love that phone call, by the way. I'd be there. We should all love that phone call. But if we don't have worship that happens in our living rooms, then the kind of worship that happens here in the temple gets pretty empty pretty fast. Don't just come to the temple Worship in our homes. Don't just hope that as we sit here on a Sunday, the door is open and someone walks in. Invite a friend. Introduce a neighbor to Jesus. It happens through relationships. Just for the sake of illustration, if we put on a marketing campaign, say, as a church, and we made the most attractive Spare no expense, flyers, inviting people to meet Jesus. And all they had to do was show up here on a Sunday morning, could pick a certain Sunday. And we put it at every single house within the entire town of Easton. Just pick that one town. What percentage of those people do you think would come? It's small. It just is. How much junk mail do you get? If the Jehovah's Witnesses gave you a tract or a flyer in the mail, would you go? How about the Buddhist temple? Talk about a religion that you are not asking you to come and learn and listen. Now flip to the other script. How many times have you had conversations with your family about faith? Sometimes it's heated when it happens. Sometimes they're calling you a hypocrite when it happens. Sometimes you're declining to do something they're doing because of your faith. Sometimes you're sharing something you're excited about. But if you got to a point with that family or with that friend where you felt like, yeah, they're, they're hearing what I'm saying, would you come to a Bible study, to my home, to my living room, to a church? What do you think the percentages are of that person who you have a relationship with, who you've been talking about with the Lord, who's showing some sort of interest? What are the percentages of that person coming? Way up. 
because they're no longer being marketed to. They're no longer being treated like a church growth campaign. You actually just care about a person. And you're there before, you're there during, and you're there after. And that's what Cornelius did. Relationship is the basis for outreach. Because that person, if they do come to Christ, they're going to need you. (laughs) What do I do? (laughs) What does this say? Did I do the right thing? Did I say the right thing? I don't know. And you're just in their lives, and you continue to be in their lives. I heard once that humans have like 14 or 17 relational spots. Think of yourself as like a power strip, and you got 14 plugs. And those are the people that are closest to you in your life that you can really invest yourself in, that you can develop close friendships with, that you can be involved in their lives. In my family, we're a family of six, so five of my plugs are gone before I even get up in the morning. I need to invest in my wife. I need to invest in our kids. So what am I down to now? Down to five out of, say, 14, so I'm down to nine. It's going quick, right? You see where this is going? (laughs) I think probably I need to be investing in Danny as he and I are brothers called to the same calling, sharing a mission field here. Okay, so Danny, let's plug you in. Go through the circle. Should my parents perhaps be in there? Should I care about them, be fully invested in their lives? Okay, I got a sister. I haven't gotten to any of you. What does that mean? That means that it's not supposed to be one person's job to do it all. All of us have 14 to 17. And if we take the person who lives next door to us and just plug them into one open spot, they're being loved and cared for by a child of God. That's all anyone needs. And we might think that there are some like extra high-capacity people who might have a power strip like that's one of those long ones that goes all the way along the wall. It's like six feet long, and it's got like 20 plugs. Maybe there are. Maybe God's uniquely gifted someone to be able to have 50 close, intimate friends who they talk with on a daily basis. And who every time there's a child born or they're in the hospital, they're there. And every question, a spiritual question that comes up, you're able to respond to. And who you're able to have fellowship with, be in the homes of every week. Maybe there are these people. I mathematically and logically cannot conceive of what that sort of person would look like or how that life would look. I don't know, so I guess it's theoretically possible, but I don't know. But guess what? You've got 14 people plugged into your life who need to know Jesus already. Just like flip on the power switch and send power to the places you're already plugged in. Just turn it on. You're already there. You don't need a new campaign. You don't need 10 new friends. You don't need to adopt 50 new non-believers. You need to plug into the people that you're in and pour Holy Spirit into their lives and love them and pray for them and get into the living room and be excited about visions that you have and about what the Word of God says and about what He's doing. And if you want to invite a Peter or a pastor or a friend to come in and just share a testimony, awesome. That's all Peter did. He's like, this is my experience. You got the Holy Spirit. You're going to have experiences of your own. It's going to be awesome. And essentially, Cornelius' house just became a church plant. He does not live in there. Peter's not staying there. Cornelius isn't even plugged into one of Peter's spots. That's the role of the apostle. There's some people who are called to just like plant and run, plant and go, plant and go, plant and go. 
Awesome. Plant as many churches. Bring as many people to Christ. But in those places, got to leave behind some power strips. Got to leave behind some believers who will bring God's love to the people in their network. So fellowship, no, relationship, I mean. Relationship is where it happens. That's where multiplication happens. One power strip, 14 plugs. Care about those 14 people with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And God will work in their lives and use you. And you will grow. And the amount of juice that's flowing through your power strip will increase. It'll just, it'll all go. It'll multiply the way it's supposed to be. Instead of seeing ourselves as just a cord. I'm plugged into New Hope, so I get fed the power that I need. I'm plugged into the Bible, so I can get the power that I need. I'm in Bible study, so I can get, if we just view ourselves as just energy needers versus energy sources, we're just plugged into Jesus. He's the best multi-plug. He can take us all. But from him, we need to multiply, not just add. So this brings us to the next word. I'll go quickly through the rest as we kind of just bring all the thoughts together. This depends upon hospitality. Peter did not say, oh, Cornelius, you want to meet? Let's meet at the temple. There's no holy places. It's not sacred places. It's sacred people. It's a sacred God. Jesus tore the curtain of the temple. So meet people at the Starbucks. Meet them in your living room. Sit at your kitchen table. Don't make it a church thing, because then immediately it like, undermines the fact that you're just a person with a person, one of your people. Hospitality has to be involved. How about morality? You see the different moralities of people? This one and the next one, put them together. Morality and salvation. All right, These are the two thoughts. Cornelius was a really moral guy, not saved. It means we can all be really good people, praying all the time, fearing God. He was not saved, did not have the Holy Spirit, and he knew it. He was just like looking, trying to do the right thing, trying to be a good person. I give to the poor. What more do you want me to do? And then he heard about Jesus and about grace, and he's like, this is a whole other thing. He was more moral <laughs> as a non Jewish Christian than some of the people were that were calling themselves Jewish Christians we see Paul preaching to in all these New Testament letters. But it didn't mean he was saved. Being moral does not mean you're saved. Believing in God does not mean you're saved. It's not what it is. It's believing that Jesus died for you and that he loves you and he wants to give you his spirit. Accepting that means you get the Holy Spirit. It means you're Sealed, signed, sealed, and delivered. You are a disciple now. Now we act as one. We live as one. That's interesting, right? You'd think he was a believer. <laughs> he was a God-fearer. He believed in God, but he had to get saved. Peter, tell me what I'm missing. I know what like, the right thing is to do. We have lots of neighbors who do the right thing. That does not mean they're saved. It doesn't mean that their soul is like, redeemed and forgiven and protected and blessed and Christ-supported and Holy Spirit-filled. No. They're a dead power strip, not plugged into anything. They've got no power. They've got no life in them. So don't equate morality with salvation for ourselves or for our neighbors. But you might find with someone who's very moral, they're wondering what next. You might think, what am I going to say to a good person? He's like, I already am a good person. Yeah, but in being a good person for your whole life, have you found there's still something missing? Still lacking some juice? Still lacking some power? Right. Because you're trying to be a power source for the world. That's not going to happen. Let me introduce you to Jesus. 
and then you'll feel power and connection with God and the Holy Spirit like you've never felt before. Now you're saved. Which leads us to the last one, which is baptisms. There's two that happen here, baptism of the Holy Spirit and baptism by water. You can go through a water baptism and like be dunked, but not receive the Holy Spirit. If we don't know what we're doing, or our heart isn't in it, we're doing it for show, we're doing it as one of our good deeds, but you need both in faith. We need that public profession of faith, and we need Christ's indwelling. So for anyone here who's been baptized by water but hasn't been baptized by the Holy Spirit, never felt that like light bulb comes on, filled with God's presence kind of experience, even if it's not an everyday thing, if you've never felt it, then just find a Peter, pray, say, God, send me a Peter. I need to know what he or she has got to say about this. And if you end up getting that call, just go and tell your experience of what it was like for you to encounter Jesus and to be amazed by him and filled with him. And either plug that person right into you right then and just commit to being with them or find someone around them, a local church, a neighbor, a friend, a sibling, and plug them and don't leave them on their own. So I've kind of alluded to it, but where I wanted to bring us to it, to bring all things together, is for you just to think about yourself in this story. Who are you right now in this story? You could either be Peter, who God wants to send to someone. Right now, you actually have that person on your mind. The Holy Spirit's telling you right now, today, this morning, give that person a call or show up in their living room because they need you. All right. Then go back to lordship and say, okay, God, whatever you want and do it. Do it today. Do it tomorrow. Right? That could be you. Or you could be Cornelius. Cornelius and the fact that you're reaching out. You're like, there's something missing. It's entirely possible that we can be in church and not be saved. It's entirely possible. Let's not stay there. So if one of us here is Cornelius, reach out. Talk to someone who you feel like might have an answer from their experience. Or maybe you're Cornelius and you need to get your family in the living room and call Peter up. Maybe somebody here needs to get your family and your friends into a living room to talk about it, instead of just trying to get them into church. Maybe we should be trying to get them into the living room. Who are you in that story? I'm going to close with this question, and I'm going to have you bow your heads for just a moment to think about this. Um, Hope and Shane, if you guys can come up and join me, we're going to close in a song. I would like you in your minds right now to identify, if you can get up to five, that's perfect, but at least two people that are in your power strip already that you need to be reaching out to. Could be your neighbors, could be your siblings, could be your coworkers. But I promise you, there are people in your life already, right now, that need Jesus. And when you've identified them by name, own that. They're your responsibility. They're not in my sphere, most likely. I probably don't even know them. Don't leave it up to the pastor. You're a child of God. Just bring your faith to them. So would you please just take a minute, think by name, and then these people are yours. 
your responsibility to love and to care for. They're responsible for their response to God, but you're responsible for loving them towards God and serving them towards God.